we may never work in the same way again. So reimagine the office with scalable workspaces that flex to your needs. Design-led interiors and world-class IT. Iconic offices have reinvented the future of working, so you don't have to. Hybrid offices, co-working, or custom floors for a global HQ. 16 prime Dublin locations, infinite possibilities. Experience it for yourself. Visit iconicoffices.ie to reimagine how working can work for your business. Alive and kicking on News Talk with Benelin Day and Night Tablets. 24 hour cold and flu relief. Always read the label. Ask your pharmacist for advice. Yes, you can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire's Lair. Coming up this morning. As a parent of two, my life was turned upside down when I had my first baby. In many of the ways, it was the best ways, but also in others. It took me and my husband years to come out the other side of and find equilibrium. So I'm fascinated by those who have more than one at a time. I'll be joined by a panel of parents of twins and triplets to get an inside view into a day in the life. I'll also be joined by Dr. Paul Dalton. He's a clinical psychologist who spent 15 years working in cancer care. He's edited a book bringing together many experts in the field to talk about living with cancer with hope amid uncertainty. He joins me to talk about why this was such an important project for him and how we don't have to promote looking on the bright side all the time. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have Well, you know, I had the couple of lazy lockdown, the return weeks after my son tested positive for COVID. And we all enjoyed those lazy routine days in my house. But this Monday or last Monday was supposed to be the first day of the rest of our lives. I'd signed up for one of those wake up well weeks with the still that I've told you about before. You go on Zoom at 6.15 with your candle lit and your cacao in your cup and You're transported by Natasha and Neil with breathing and other bits and it's glorious. So I started with that on Monday. I felt like a smug earth mother as I got my kids out the door to school, did an online yoga class, cleaned the house, restarted an online nutrition course that got shelved during the pandemic, which I've now realised isn't going anywhere. And I generally had the most productive day. I felt amazing and was ready to just power through the week. And then Storm Barra had other ideas. I mean, how inconvenient and disruptive was all of that? My sincere apologies if you had an absolute mare and there was damage to your home or your business or indeed if you work in services that had to sort all that mess out. And yes, I suppose thanks to the powers that be for putting health and safety first. But I think we're all kind of over stay at home for your own safety now, aren't we? The novelty has worn off somewhat and it certainly had in my house. Two more days Kids asking me constant questions involving when were they getting screen time and snacks again. Anyway, I got through it, had a good week, but it wasn't quite what I had in mind. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Now, Dr. Paul Dalton is head of the Department of Psychology at St. Vincent's University Hospital Dublin and associate professor at the School of Psychology at UCD. He's worked in cancer care for over 15 years. A book he has edited, bringing together 12 brilliant minds who also work in the field, has just been published. It's called Living with Cancer, with Hope Amid Uncertainty. And Dr. Paul Dalton joins me on the line now. Hello, Paul. How are you? I'm very well, Claire. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you for coming on and congratulations on what is a very special book. Even when I was reading it, I just know it's going to mean so much to so many people. It's to give an insight into life with cancer. And 
there's a real human desire, isn't there, for information and a pathway at a time of trauma. And you might think it insensitive of me to talk about a funeral while we're talking about cancer, but maybe it's because I was at one this morning. But I was thinking at a time like that, we really lean on things like the priest or the funeral directors and they just tell us where we fill in the blanks with our own personal needs and and requests. We really like a formula. And you do hear with a diagnosis of something like cancer, people often say, once the doctor said you have cancer, I didn't really hear anything else after that. So I'd imagine this book is something for them to then take when the dust has settled a little Mm. bit to help Mm. them to process. Mm. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and I I get that was our intention behind writing, writing the book. So it's basically Claire a book that we 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 call it you know living with cancer with hope amid the uncertainty, and I kind of for for those of us old enough to remember the um the backpacker's guide or the kind of book that you'd you'd bring when you went to a country and you'd find your way around, it's a little bit like that. So so everything from um well what is cancer? You've just been diagnosed. What might you be feeling? Um, right up to talking to your children about your cancer, sexuality, body image, anxiety, depression, the, the, the whole gamut um, of what people go through uh, when they get a diagnosis of cancer and they're, they're having treatment, which we, we all know is, is, can be very challenging for people. And I think, Claire, our kind of concern, so it's written, I've, I've written two of the chapters and edited, and then there's uh, 12... 11 other people who've written chapters, psychologists and psychiatrists. And between us, there's about about 150 years <laughs> clinical experience. So, so I, we, we hope there's a little bit of wisdom in there that just might make this pretty awful thing that people go through a little bit easier. And it is the kind of, as I said, the kind of rough guide. And and the intention is that it's not a book that you'd sit down and read from cover to cover, but it might be on the shelf. And you think, okay, you know what? I'm feeling really concerned about how to talk to the kids. Or, oh God, my mood is very low. Do I need some help? This might be a reliable handbook. Because I think... Claire, for a lot of us, you know, when we, as you said, when we kind of face a crisis in our lives, we instinctively reach out and think, okay, I need a bit of guidance here. I need a a roadmap. Now, unfortunately, most of us will go to Dr. Google and too much Googling is really bad for your health. And because there's such misinformation out there, particularly when it comes to the kind of psychological impact or emotional impact of cancer. Like people have said to me over the years, oh, Paul, I read that I got cancer uh, because I, uh, I, I couldn't express my emotions properly. I mean, that is just nonsense. Um, absolute nonsense, Claire. And one of the really, really important things to say to listeners is that, you know, your your mind didn't cause your cancer and your mind won't cure your cancer. So we've got to be very careful uh, when we go to Dr. Google to find these things out because we're overwhelmed with information. But very often 
that information is, could we say, uh, potentially inaccurate. So this book is written by experts and it's peer reviewed. And what we mean by that is it's gone out to other professionals. They've read it and they've gone, actually, this makes sense and this is evidence based. So, so we hope that we're offering something meaningful, uh, kind, evidence based and, and something that's just going to be useful to people in at a really difficult point in their lives. And you know what's nice about it? It's not a big tome. It's it's quite a small book, so it's not overwhelming because, as you said, going onto Google can be not only inaccurate, but it can be overwhelming. I know when I became a new parent, I was crying out for expert mm-hmm. help, feeling out of my depth. And you're finding conflicting advice mm-hmm. online and the books that you get are massive, big encyclopedias that you just find overwhelming. So like you say, these are almost, I wouldn't say bite size, but it's just a chapter yeah. and it's a very small, I'm holding it here, thin book. So again, it's not overwhelming. And yeah. it has a lovely, a lovely tone to it. As you say, you've included hope in it, yeah. but it's also grounded in reality because mm. there is a real, there is hope, obviously, in in cancer. Mm-hmm. There's 170,000 people living with cancer and beyond. And it's it's no longer seen as the the sentence that it once mm-hmm. was. But there there is a gravity to it that people need to know about and, and hear about and, and feel it's OK for mm-hmm. them to go through. What are what are your thoughts on that? Mm-hmm. Completely. Uh, and, I, and, and I'm really glad that you said that, because, again, for, for, for people listening, um, and I'm not minimizing cancer remotely, but it is very different to how it was even five years ago. There was a, a, a patient I saw not too long ago, and, and he said to me after a very successful treatment for his cancer, he said, I was born on the right side of science. So, so science and medicine has moved on so much that conditions or cancers that we talked about or encountered a number of years ago many of which are very, very treatable. Um, So I think that's a really important thing to say is that there is hope. There is, of course, huge uncertainty, but but there is hope. And that's that's really important to hold on to. And that the information that's available, as we say, that the information that's available um, doesn't kind of overwhelm people even more, you know, Um, that we, because we get, can get lost. We can get lost in that kind of avalanche um, and the misinformation. Because I think, you know, the, oh, my cancer is the result of my stress or my cancer is a result of, as I say, not expressing emotion or these things that are untrue. Um, that, 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 that information, we, we, we need to correct that information out there um, so that people don't suffer unnecessarily or suffer more one of the my kind of bugbears in all of over the last number of years has been this excessive excessive kind of emphasis on positivity you know oh no matter what you do uh, you've got to keep positive the kind of um it's an irish form of the kind of british stiff upper lip and uh, and really, uh, it's it's not doing us any harm. If by nature you're someone who is 
positive, who is glass half full. That's great. That's absolutely fine. But if you're not, don't try and force it. Um, the, 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 there was a wonderful psychiatrist, uh, Jimmy Holland, who started the field of psychoencology about 40 years ago. Uh, and she referred it to uh, as the cult of the positive, that being positive can be a bit of a cult. And, uh, and, and when we get into cults, we tend to get very isolated from the people that we love and the people that we really need. So we can kind of end up pretending to be positive and inside we're falling apart. Now, we know as psychologists, we know that that's not a great way to be getting through a crisis because what gets us through a crisis is the love and the support and the care of the people in our communities and the people in our lives. And I can't really stress that enough. Um, and sometimes people kind of laugh at me a little bit, Claire, but I do say, you know, you can, if we were to take so much of the research about resilience, and well-being and coping with adversity and we were to boil it all down one of the pieces that will come out of that is the importance of social support the importance of the people i meet on a daily basis the people i share my life with if i'm lucky social the 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 kind of the idea of a one good adult that actually if we manage to have one good adult one good relationship one friend in our lives that can get us through uh, all sorts of all sorts of difficulties including and the challenges of a cancer diagnosis and treatment survivorship or, or when survivorship isn't an option so so what we don't want is uh the kind of pop psychology being forced to being positive to get in the way of relationships because it's relationships actually that keep us alive. Yeah, because you have the reality of the situation. Um, living with and in a changed body, cancer-related fatigue, depression and cancer, stress and cancer, because they're not things we we talk about because we're kind of whitewashing over it. And it's this battle that you take on and you emerge victorious and it's not really allowing for how tough it is. And, and I think it's important in these situations when you're talking about social support that sometimes we just hear somebody and say, yeah, that, that's really tough what you're going through. I'm here for you. You're right. Without giving them that that Instagrammable yeah. quote. Exactly, exactly. You know, the kind of, oh, well, you know, you got to look on the bright side. Do you know what? We don't always need to look on the bright side. We need to have the conversations with, with people that we love in our lives and go, this is just today or this moment. This is absolutely awful. And, and literally feel our shoulders come down and go, at the moment, it's really hard. Because when we acknowledge that, then we can take action then we can kind of do things that help. And, and we can, you know, Claire, we can nearly breathe when we just say, you know that one when you actually say to someone, I'm not doing great at the moment. And it's almost at that point that things, things begin to change, things begin to shift a little bit. And, 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 and some, of the, the, some of the approach to cancer, um, you know, I, I, I've kind of said before, it can get very pink and very fluffy. You know, and it can minimise what what the real impact of cancer. You know, there it comes with an emotional and psychological burden, and there's nothing pink or fluffy about that. 
it's tough. It is will demand uh, people dig really, really deep. The really important thing to say is that even when people have significant anxiety or depression, so when they get into kind of a clinical range, when things are very troubling, Claire, even then, those difficulties are treatable. You know, things have come on a lot. So so if you're noticing or someone's listening to the program and is kind of noticing, God, yeah, I've had the cancer. You know, it's been a couple of weeks now of very low mood, a couple of weeks of when I've lost interest, don't want to see people. Again, now, and, and people will give out to me for this, for being far too simplistic, but I always hold a kind of a two-week kind of benchmark in my mind that if the kind of mood is low, if the anxiety is very high, if the sleep is very disturbed, that's okay for a few days. That's normal. But if it's kind of heading into two weeks, that's always the point where I say to people, you know what, might be a good idea to talk to your GP, might be a good idea to talk to the, the, the Irish Cancer Society, to their nurse-run helpline, because they're just fantastic, but reaching out. But but the, the important, the, the good news, the important thing to say is that these difficulties that come with cancer are very treatable um, and, and they don't have to be a life sentence there, you know? Um, yeah, and I think not. we're so... Um... In society today, we're so fearful of the negative emotions and they're very much part of all human experience, particularly when you're going through a big trauma like a cancer diagnosis and treatment. It's perfectly understandable. But I think the more people talk about that, the more people will say, oh, right. So I don't have to be feeling like this all of the time. I mean, one of your chapters is called four seasons in in one day you just don't want people to think am i doing this wrong is everybody else out there battling cancer like some valiant hero and i'm pathetic everything is valid and everybody's experience is the the right experience for them you say in the opening that you want to obviously thank all the people that have been a part of the book and all the other experts who have given their chapters and, and voice to it but Ultimately, you thank your your cancer patients that you've worked with as a clinical psychologist over the last 15 years. What's different, Paul, when you go from studying in the books to actually meeting the people? You say they became your teachers. What did they teach you? Humility, real, real humility. When something is from a from a textbook, from sitting in, in, in university lecture halls to reading textbook. And then when you sit in front of a human being who has a life-threatening illness and you see the, the struggle um, and the resilience and the flickers of hope and the flickers of anger, the whole range of human emotion and the capacity to take care of oneself in the face of those kinds of challenges. It's ex- it's extraordinary. And I don't use the word, I'm, kind of, I'm going to say dignity, and, and maybe it's a bit of an old fashioned word, word, but the way that people have kind of shouldered their suffering um, and 
in that kind of their regard for other people, their regard for their community, for the people that they love. I, I was very struck recently with that beautiful documentary about Keelan Shanley, um, who, who who died a little over a little over a year ago. Um, and Keelan Shanley's husband said, you know, when, when she was diagnosed, Keelan apologized and said, I'm sorry for, for this to her family. And that always strikes me that very often people will say, gosh, I'm sorry to be bringing this on the people I love. And I just think there is a tendency to, to paint human nature um, as self-serving and self-interested and red in tooth and claw. And I think what I've seen over the years with people who are facing an illness like cancer is actually the opposite, is a deep care for how this impacts on on other people. So, yeah, something about the dignity of that. Um, And I think, you know, the tremendous sense of humour that that I've encountered too with people over the years who are very ill, who yeah. manage to to laugh um, and be grateful um, and be and be you know responsive and and warm in the middle of it all because I think it goes back a little bit to 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 what you said a couple of minutes ago that being able to experience the whole range of emotions. You know, the good. I often say that the, it's about the good, the bad, and the ugly of emotions. I can do the good emotions, the bad ones, and the ugly ones, and go, and and still survive, and still keep the head above water. I think that's what I've learned. That 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 the difficult emotions, when we lean into them, when we move a little bit closer to them, actually, we're we're not going to drown in them. Um, if we do that in in uh, sometimes with a little bit of help and support, but um, when when we turn down, Claire, I think you, you you know this, but when we when we avoid difficult emotions, we also avoid the beautiful emotions, the really the really good emotions. We can't choose. When you turn down the emotion dial, you turn down the bad ones, but you also turn down the good ones. Does that yeah. make a bit of sense? No, it does. It absolutely <laughs> does. It's all part of the human experience. And you're mm. right, even in the darkest moments, there can be humour and there can be light and there can be lessons. Absolutely beautiful words. And the book is full of them. I think it's a great book for somebody who's had a diagnosis, who's going through treatment, but also for their loved ones and friends, because it gives a real insight into what they're going through. And I think it'll help you. We we find it really hard to know what the right thing to say is or to do is. And all we have to do really is listen. The book is called Living with Cancer with Hope Amid the Uncertainty. It's edited by Dr. Paul Dalton. And Paul, thank you so much for coming on. An absolute pleasure, Claire. Thank you. Coming up after the break, I meet a panel of parents with twins, triplets and siblings of same to find out what life is like. Alive and kicking on News Talk with Benelin Day and Night Tablets. 24-hour cold and flu relief. Always read the label. Ask your pharmacist for advice. So multiples have always fascinated me, especially when I had a baby myself and realised what an atomic bomb it is into the middle of your life. A well-wanted and loved one. And yes, there are so many positives, but man, it takes some getting used to. So I can only imagine what it's like to bring home more than one newborn at a time. My panel of guests have done just that. 
often to awaiting firstborn toddlers and they have managed to find time in their schedule to talk to me about it. But before I turn to them, let's take a look at some multiple birth facts. The world is at peak twin as birth rates are at an historic high. The global twin birth rate has risen by a third on average over the past 40 years. Greater access to fertility treatment and leaving parenthood until later in life are thought to be contributing factors. And just while I'm on that, there's one thing I want to say Even though I am going to be asking these three parents, how tired are you? How crazy is it? All of that. I want to say I'm marking it with respect for anyone who is struggling to have a baby where none of us are being flippant about that topic because it can be hard to get them in there. And I think we all agree on that. The most recent available figures on multiple births in Ireland from the ERSI show that in 2018, there were 1,090 sets of twins born, 30 sets of triplets. The last recorded set of quadruplets, there were two, making eight babies in total, was in 2016. And there was one set of quintuplets, five babies in one born in 2015. So let me introduce you to my panel today. I am joined by mum to four-month-old twin girls, Summer and Sienna, and almost three-year-old Rocky. We have Lauren O'Sullivan. Hello, Lauren. Hi, Claire. And same, same, but different. We have Aidan O'Toole. He and his wife are parents to Anna, age three, and twins Nina and Sadie, who are one. So you are completely outnumbered, Aidan. Yeah, completely. (laughs) I hope you have a male dog or at least a male guinea pig or something. (laughs) No, not yet. <laughs> You've enough going on. And yeah. finally, we have Elizabeth Nicholas from Limerick. She is married to Porrick. They have triplets who are three, Porrick, Sean and Fionn and baby Oren. Uh, so, Elizabeth, yeah. I'm going to start with you. How are you today? I'm good. I've had my coffee, so we're all good in the world now. So Great. I have one yeah. beside me as we speak. So the reason I'm starting with you is 10 months after giving birth to your triplets, you got pregnant again. So at one stage you had four babies under the age of two, all boys. Is everything okay? Are you okay? Yes, yeah. Uh, I am, (laughs) just about. (laughs) Uh, Well, no, to be honest with you, they're actually very good, but it was, um, Oren was obviously born at the height of the first lockdown. So it was a very difficult time to be kind of heavily pregnant and looking after one and a half year old triplets because my parents couldn't call out. Um, Obviously they were, cocooning as well and my parents-in-law were they couldn't come out because they were they weren't you know the 2k kilometer restrictions so it was it was very at a very difficult time around then and um, obviously you know yourself you can be pretty immobile when you're heavily pregnant and then trying to look after uh, triplet toddlers as well as it was a bit of an experience anyway to say the least but uh, we're com- coming out the sunny side now so and can we go back to when you found out you were expecting triplets? When were you told? Yeah. Um, we were told I we went for, we went for an early scan because we were actually heading away to Croatia on a three week holiday, and we went for a nine week scan. Our booking scan would have been I think I was nine or ten weeks. Our booking scan would have been while we were away, so we opted to go for an early scan, and um, they had told us twins. And we, you know, twins are, there's twins on both sides of our family. So um, my husband's dad is a twin and, um, you know, we were delighted and we were like, this is brilliant, you know, and fantastic. And off we went to um, travel Croatia and island top. And when we came back then, we had um, our uh, another scan and we were told then um, it was triplets. So 
I can honestly say I've never seen my husband so speechless and shocked in all my life. (laughs) And he's a GP, so he's heard a lot, I'd say, Elizabeth. Yes, yeah, yeah. So he and, and I think the reason why he was so shocked was because straight away he was thinking about, oh, my God, they're going to be premature. Um. You know, he knew more about the complications that are associated with, um, you know, multiple births and, you know, triplets, I suppose. And, you know, even twins and, you know, any any kind of birth, I suppose. He he knew too much, basically. Hmm. So I think that's why he was so shocked and kind of like, oh, my God. But once he got his head around it and, you know, everything was going fine, you know, he was. Obviously now he's delighted, like, you know, but at the time I just never forget how speechless he, he was. And I was just like, oh, sure, what's one more into the pot, you know? So I'm very but, impressed uh, you were island hopping around Croatia with three babies know, in I, your tummy. I know, but anyway, yeah, I was I'm, like, I took advantage of kind of like him holding, taking all the bags on and off and everything. Like he was like a Sherpa <laughs> carrying all my bits, like, you know, but um yeah, it was it was actually I suppose we were I was kind of the early stages of, of the pregnancy. So I wasn't too, you know, obviously, you know, I wasn't in any way um uncomfortable or, you know, um I didn't really suffer from morning sickness or anything. So that was a huge plus. Yeah. Thankfully. And just as yeah. well, you got that holiday in. Yeah. Can I bring you in there, Lauren, yeah. and ask you finding out about being pregnant with twins. So you had Rocky at home, you go for your scan. Is that when they told you your first scan? Yeah, we were we were talking for a while about going again and there was just something Claire I knew. I joked with my best friend about it that it could be twins because I felt awful. And I had a dream pregnancy with Rocky, very straightforward and just this was different. And it was this time last year and uh I I rang the clinic closest to us to book in for a scan and I remember she said, look, leave it to about eight weeks if you can. Give it as long as you can. And when we went in, I, t- I just knew. And then the, I hadn't said anything to Alex and it came up on the screen and I saw the two sacks straight away and he didn't cop it. But straight away, the sonographer said, well, we have two babies here. And like Elizabeth's husband, it just he had no words he was so speechless and he was speechless for about two weeks after that <laughs> I and I think sometimes you're better to go into it blind but when you've had one baby and you know what that was like to think that you're going to bring home two of them to that toddler that's a lot to get your head around yeah for sure and straight away I started thinking about all the possible complications and how this wouldn't be straightforward. I loved my pregnancy with Rocky. I had a really great delivery, a breastfeeding experience, everything. It was all textbook, you know? And so I was very early on hit with the fear that this is going to be really hard and it won't be as straightforward. So they were the kind of things that went through my head in the early days. And can I bring in our dad, our one and only dad, Aidan? The, the yeah. two dads in this setup stayed silent. How did you get on with the news you were going to be bringing two babies um, home to Anna? Yeah, like I, I think before, like Lauren, I was more thinking that it could be twins. Neve is a lot sicker than the first pregnancy. Um, and her first pregnancy was really like like a dream, like Lauren's. And uh, we, there's a lot of twins in both sides of our families. So we're, I was winding her up saying it probably is twins all the way into the scan. Um, so that didn't go too well when it actually was twins in the end. But yeah, like it was, it was a good outcome. We were happy with it. Um, 
I, I looked over at Neve when they initially went when the consultant went from the first one to the second, and I could see the second sack. And she was just like she she was speechless. She was probably like Alex there and Lauren with Lauren uh, two weeks for me. It took her to come around to actually idea of having twins. Um, I was probably more thinking of the practicalities of probably changing the car, all these different things with baby seats because we had a, obviously a young toddler, um, and we were moving house as well at the time. We're trying to buy a house, um, which we eventually got the keys to when when they were the day they were delivered. Um, so it was just like we knew it was a lot of stuff going going to, going to happen in the next few months that we had to prepare for. But uh, bringing bringing them home wasn't too bad. We weren't too worried about it. We Anna fairly well prepped um, that you know all the way through that she's going to have two sisters coming. So she's more excited about it than anything. There was never really a jealousy streak with her, which was which was great. We were really worried about that. Um, but. We, we we obviously assign a lot of time to her on her own and try to spend a bit of time individually with her and um, so she never gets really too jealous of the twins. So she gets on really well with them now. Because it, it must be so full on. Elizabeth, can you talk to us about those early days bringing home three babies? What kind of an, an operation that was and how much help did you need? Um, yeah, you, it's true what the saying says, you need a village to raise a child. You know, we brought the lads home um they were in six weeks in the NICU. So when they did come home, um, thankfully, uh, the NICU nurses and doctors had actually set up a four hour feeding routine. And we were told to stick to that routine as much as you can. And I'm telling you, we stuck to it so much. Um, they were feeding every four hours like clockwork. And they, you know, we kind of stuck to that. And it was like I was pumping as well. So it was I felt like I didn't get any sleep. It's actually so foggy that time because um, you're obviously feeding them every four hours. If you're pumping, you have to be up an hour before you give them the feed. And then obviously you have to wash all the equipment and whatever. So I felt like I was only getting like two hours sleeps in between all the feeds. Um, But myself and my husband, he was fantastic. He was, he'd take over the kind of like the night shift and let me sleep for like hope, like, you know, ideally five or six hours. And then I do it kind of like from four o'clock onwards. So it was kind of like everything had to be planned, everything, you know, we had to have a routine for everything. Um, And I did have I did have a good bit of help. Thankfully, you know, my parents, they're literally uh, two minutes down the road. And my mother in law as well was fantastic for coming out and simple things like uh, cooking us dinner and kind of, um, you know, just making sure things around the house got done, like, you know, the washing and because the amount of bottles we had to wash, the clothes um, things like that, they would have all piled up because we were so concentrated on getting the lads fed and getting them, you know, put down for sleeping. And it was just, it's just such a foggy memory now at this stage, you know, it's just like you're you're kind of in a haze, you're kind of like a robot, you know, just trying to get through the day, make sure that they're fed and slept. And, you know, it was, it was, it was difficult. Yeah. But we did I'd have help, say. thankfully. And Lauren, is it similar with twins? Do you have to have a plan and stick to it? Like, if they're both wanting to feed and they're both wanting to be carried and it's just you there, what are you supposed to do? Pick your favourite? <laughs> Sometimes, yeah. Um, whichever one shouts loudest gets fed first, really. But I, all those things went through my head, Claire. Um, exactly as Elizabeth described, I've heard so many stories of babies in NICU. I know a girl had twin boys. One went home before the other. And these were all things going through my head. And my husband's a great planner. And Alex, you know, was trying to get organized for every eventuality and eventually we just came to the conclusion that 
whatever happens and whenever they're delivered or whatever outcome it is, we'll cope with that situation. And as it turned out, I went to 36 plus 6. Very straightforward delivery, vaginal delivery. So I didn't have surgery, which was a concern going home to a toddler. Um, so I recovered really well. The girls, because I've had a successful breastfeeding journey with Rocky, I was quite confident about breastfeeding twins. I have a good friend who breastfed twins. So I was happy enough that, you know, once we got home, I'd be okay. And um, we have a wonderful doula who we had when Rocky came home as well. Sadly, I don't have my mom. So a doula was a great support to us. And once I got home, I had one extra night in hospital just to get the girls' blood sugar levels up. And we did top them up with bottles. And I had a feeding chart and all the best intentions of being very organized. And that lasted about four hours. Mm-hmm. And now it is, they, they just, now that they're a couple of months, we are predominantly bottle feeding during the day, but I still breastfeed at night and in the morning. And I, I'm not a great routine person. So the fact that I wasn't forced into a routine meant I could kind of stick to feeding on demand as much as possible and then them taking a bottle when they need it. Well, hats off. I'm surprised any of you can take this phone call. We'll have to take a quick break. But when we come back, I'm going to get into what a typical day looks like in such busy, busy households. Alive and kicking on News Talk with Benelin Day and Night Tablets. 24 hour cold and flu relief. Always read the label. Ask your pharmacist for advice. You're listening to Alive and Kicking here on News Talk and I'm joined by a panel of guests who are parents to multiples. I have Lauren O'Sullivan, who is mum to four-month-old twins Summer and Sienna and almost three-year-old Rocky. Aidan O'Toole, he and his wife Neve are parents to Anna, age three, and twins Nina and Sadie, who are one, and Elizabeth Nicholas, who is married to Porrick and they have triplets, Pordrick, Sean, Fionn and baby Oren. Aidan, can you tell us now with... One-year-old twins and three-year-old Anna, what is a typical day in your house? Does it have to run like clockwork or do you have to throw away the routine and go with the flow? Yeah, no, it, it pretty much we it has to run like clockwork. Otherwise, it's a, it's a complete disaster. Um, like Anna actually, believe it or not, wakes up before the twins um, and then she generally wakes everyone in the house. So it's uh, from then on, it's usually bottles for the twins and breakfast for Anna. Um, and with obviously schools being off during the hurricane, recent hurricane, that was a bit of a disaster. But it's uh, generally then get her to school and then the twins have their normal routine then for the day, which is which is usually the same. Neve has probably tried to be quite stringent with their routine. I think she got that advice probably to Lauren did as well, trying to keep their routine and Elizabeth. The feeding routine is obviously they, they, they scream and cry, cry when they're hungry, but keeping that in check is obviously key to, you know, keeping the naps going and stuff like that and getting them down to bed at the right time. So, yeah, it's it's all routine with, with both of us. And from the start, when they were, we were brought back, it was um, it was constantly, we, we did both the feeds together for a, a number of, like a couple of months, which was just, as, as Elizabeth said, you're just like a robot for that stage but it's it's a lot easier now than it, than it was and Elizabeth do you feel I mean look as we've said this is a real special gift as every child is and you're filled with love and there's something really special about multiples as well but is there part of you that feels a little bit robbed once I came out of the fog with my one baby there was lots of sitting around you know watching telly while the baby slept I took a gazillion photographs of him lying in various ways did you really have time for any of that 
Um, yeah, that's the one thing, like, I suppose it's the same with any parent, the guilt gets it, gets at you. You know, some days, you know, even though I have a singleton now, I'd often think like, what would it have been like if it was, you know, the other way around, I had Oren first and then the triplets, you know, because with Oren, I see now kind of what it is to have like, you know, I suppose a normal everyday kind of, um, family kind of you know it, when the lads go to play school like I can take Oren uptown I can bring him to the shop I can you know bring him to the restaurant I can do normal things whereas with the triplets I could never do that I could never like just even now I can't put them all into the car myself I can't bring them to the shop I can't bring them to the you know simple little things like even bring it, bringing them to the playground I can't do it by myself because you literally need eyes in the back of your head and you need to make sure that every single one of them are safe and obviously they run in four different directions anytime we go anywhere so like yeah that kind of you you do wonder sometimes what you know what have I missed out on but to be honest with you I haven't missed out on anything like you know if anything it's a blessing you know to have them all looking after each other and kind of um especially during COVID that we we had they, they kept each other company and you know that's a huge plus to it you know and that um I suppose um and the reason why they're so good I I firmly believe the reason why they're so good at sleeping, they sleep through the night. And I think that's down to having a routine and kind of sticking to um, the the routine that was set in place for us. Now we have to yeah. have, we have had, we have had to make a lot of sacrifices, especially with Oren as well, because they're in two separate routines, which means they're all napping at different times. And before when the, when the triplets were, um, you know, Oren was like, I was still pregnant with Oren. We, I had around two hours of the day just to myself. Whereas now with Oren, I don't have any time, you know, because yeah. it's all about yeah. room. So when Oren is awake, the triplets still go for a nap after play school. And when um, the lads are awake, Oren goes down for a nap. So you're just kind of, you're chained into their routine. Like, you know, you time sure is are. Time is not your and Lauren, yeah, is that one of the flip sides of multiples, especially because you had one baby and then you had two? Do multiples learn to self-soothe a little bit better because they're not in your arms the whole time? You can't run to them and they have each other. Yeah, absolutely. And really interesting to hear Elizabeth say that about the guilt because that is something that does get you. But on the flip side, it's the toddler you're guilty about. Like Aidan and Neve are good friends of ours and they had so much advice for us because they'd been through it with Anna. And that is one thing worth saying is that other multiple parents are your go-to because they get it. And they'll be full of advice for you if you are expecting multiple uh, pregnancy. You know, it, it's just it, it, other people who've been through it have so much good advice for you. But there was a guilt about Rocky, to be honest, because I look at the girls now and I'm like, sure, there's two of them. They're grand. You know, like... They don't get lonely if you have to leave them down for a minute beside one another. Like our two now are starting to like make noises at each other, laugh at each other. So you do in the beginning with with your first, you know, you're like you said, you're staring at them. You're taking a million pictures of them. It's all consuming with two and then an older one. You just don't have that time. But it the guilt more so is for the toddler. You have to make one on one time for them. Yeah. And Aidan, can I ask you something else that I always wonder when you have multiples? When you get out and about, are you stopped constantly with people who want to tell you what you already know that you have twins? Yeah, yeah, you're stopped an awful lot <laughs> about it. Um, there seems to be, I live in Graceland, there seems to be a lot of twins around Graceland of their age as well. So there's like, I think there's about seven or eight 
I'm sure Lauren lives nearby as well. She's probably spotted something a lot in the water there. out there. Yeah, there, there must be. All right, it's all the sea swimming right during the pandemic, <laughs> I'd say. But it's uh, it, yeah, like it, you're constantly stopped to ask about them, and then are they identical? Is always the the next question. Um, and you're like, uh, well, they look alike, but they're not identical. Is, is my answer. But it's uh, yeah, you're constantly stopped with them. And the other Irish question that people love, do you get this, Elizabeth, even with triplets and a baby, will you go again? People love to ask that. Oh my God, you have no idea. The amount of people that actually say to me, oh, you'll go again for the girl. And I'm like, oh my God, I have have four under, like, you know, the the boys just turned three and I have like a one and a half year old. Will you give me a chance? (laughs) And like, I'm very happy with the four boys. Absolutely so happy. Like I have no intention of going again just for the girl. Like, you know, my God, like, because... It's fine at the age they're at now, but I'm thinking of a few years' time when financially they're going to cost us an absolute arm and a leg. You know what Especially I mean? boys. And, you won't uh, keep a slice so pan in that house, that's no. for sure. Well, I wouldn't dare oh. ask any of you, would you go again? Oh. Thank you so much for giving oh, us a window yeah. into life in your house. Lauren O'Sullivan, Aidan O'Toole and Elizabeth Nicholas, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Claire. So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks as ever to my producer John Fardy, to Garrett Mulhall and to Simon Keane and to Jojo Cordoza who was on sound. And thanks to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and Kicking on News Talk with Benelin Day and Night Tablets. 24-hour cold and flu relief. Always read the label. Ask your pharmacist for advice. If you are 65 or over, or you have a weak immune system, you can now get your second COVID-19 booster vaccine. Your vaccine is due four months after your last vaccine. It will improve your protection from COVID-19. You can book a vaccination centre appointment on hsc.ie or contact a participating GP or pharmacy. For more information on your second booster or to book an appointment, visit hsc.ie or call our team in HSE Live on 1800 700 700 from the HSE for us all.